we are in we're in Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 1 to 20 I have a question for you as you're turning to Deuteronomy 16 when you read the Bible do you sometimes just read the words and forget that God is talking to you God gave his words to men to write down so you and I could know the truth. We could know the truth about who God is. We could know the truth about who we are. And best of all, we can learn the truth about who we can be in Christ. We have the opportunity today to read words that God gave to Moses about 3,500 years ago. But whenever we open the Word of God, it's never ancient history because God's Word is alive. It's active. This means God has life-changing truth for you and me today to discover in this passage we're going to read. We're going to read instructions Moses gave for three feasts or festivals, and we're going to see that when God, when God plans a feast, it's a feast for a soul. Israel's feasts had four components. They were communal because they brought, God wanted to bring his people together. They were commemorative. God used these times to remind the people how he rescued them, how he brought them out of slavery into the promised land. The feasts were theological because they revealed truths about God, truths about his judgment of sin and the forgiveness, grace, and mercy that is available to every sinner. And the feasts were typological. They were types or they were symbols of things to come. The feasts foreshadowed, they anticipated God's plan of salvation for the world through Jesus Christ. Let's start with the Feast of Passover. This is covered in chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. We'll take this a few at a time. So let's just read the first two verses together. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish his name. The month of Abib was later changed to the month of Nisan after the Babylonian captivity. On our calendar, it would fall from about mid-March to mid-April, springtime kind of coming up. If you remember at the first Passover, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God sent 10 plagues to convince Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people go. The 10th plague was the death of every firstborn in the land. But then God told his people to take a male lamb without defect and sacrifice it in their homes and then use the lamb's blood to mark their doorposts and the lintel across the top. Then at midnight when the Lord came to unleash his wrath on Egypt, whenever he came to a home that was marked with the blood of the lamb, the Lord passed over that house and everyone inside was safe and sound. Forty years later, in our passage, the people are about to enter the promised land, and Moses declares here, and then he does it again in verses 5 and 6 when we get to that, that from now on, they were not 
to have Passover individually in their homes. From now on, God wanted all his people to gather together to a place that God would choose. It would be the tabernacle, later the temple in Jerusalem, and then later after that, the church. We'll see that in a few minutes. Theologically, of course, Passover gives us a crystal clear picture of how God responds to sin. Sin brings God's wrath and judgment. Sin carries the death penalty. However, all sinners who are protected by the blood of the Lamb will never, ever face God's wrath and judgment. Passover is typological because it pointed to the coming of Jesus, the Lamb of God, about 1,500 years after Moses. In John 1.29, remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus coming to him to be baptized? He said, on the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Today, today, you and I don't apply the blood of a lamb to our doorposts. Instead, by faith, we apply the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, to our lives. The precious blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, washes us clean of our sin so that God's wrath passes over us. We who are guilty, we who are guilty of sin receive a complete pardon because Jesus paid the full cost of our sins with his blood. John 3.36 tells us, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God does not pass over that person. The wrath of God abides on him. On the cross, Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus, the Lamb without defect, bore the full wrath of God on his own body. He took the punishment you and I deserve for our sin. An author named uh, Helen White said, Jesus suffered, suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life that was his. The most important decision you will ever make in your life is not where to go to school or what career path to take, or even who to marry. The most important decision you'll ever make is to believe in the Son of God. To believe in the power of Jesus' death as the full payment for your sins, past, present, and future. And to believe in the power of His resurrection from the dead as your guarantee of eternal life. So the question is, are you believing in the Son today? Are you trusting in Christ? You're either sure you are, or you may be unsure if you are. If you're unsure, if you have questions, will you please come speak to me after the service? If you see me talking to somebody, just interrupt and ask your question. Or if I seem too scary, uh, we, have a, we have a prayer team that will meet over here at the end of the service, just come and speak with them. We would, we're not going to ask you to join anything. We're not going to ask you to do anything other than we want to answer your questions and we want to pray with you so that you can leave here today knowing you are completely forgiven, that the blood of the Lamb has washed you clean of your sins and you have eternal life through Jesus, the Son of God. An important point or important part of the Feast of Passover was a special kind of bread 
that God commanded them to eat. Let's read about that in verses 3 to 4. You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. On the first Passover, the Lord commanded the people to eat unleavened bread. That's bread without yeast. Because, it's very practical, because they were about to leave Egypt in such a hurry, there would be no time for the dough to rise. Verse 3 tells us very clearly, and we need to take note of this because this is going to become important in a minute. Verse 3 says, The bread was to remind the people of the day the Lord rescued them from Egypt. So remember that. The bread reminded them of the day the Lord rescued them from Egypt. That's going to become important in a second. But the entire week of the festival, the people were to remove all yeast, get it as far away from them as they could. No yeast in their homes or their territory. Get all yeast away. Why all this fuss about yeast? I'm glad you asked. Because there's a theological truth for us. Yeast. Yeast is powerful. Because it only takes a little bit of yeast to very slowly, silently, gradually permeate the entire lump of dough. That's why in Scripture, sin, yeast often symbolizes sin because sin is also powerful. It only takes, it only takes a tiny bit of sin in our lives to very silently, very gradually permeate our entire lives. Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So when God commanded the people of Israel to remove all leaven from their lives, he was commanding them to put away their sinful habits. God was calling them to live an unleavened life, a life of obedience, a life of obedience to him. And it's important for you and I to understand that God did not command the people to put away leaven in order to earn his favor. God commanded them to put away leaven because they already had God's favor. God had already chosen them to be his people. And that's the same truth for you and I today, same principle. We do not obey God to earn our salvation. We obey the Lord out of gratitude for the salvation he's already given us in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you know this passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not, Not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. You and I are no longer commanded to take yeast out of our house for one week a year. Instead, you and I are called to remove yeast or sin from our lives every day of the year, which is impossible to do without the Holy Spirit. That's why it says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. When we follow the Spirit, He always leads us to Jesus, to obedience in Christ. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can escape. We can escape this curse of self-centered living and we can experience the joy of Christ-centered living. Would you like to see something amazing Jesus did? Of course you do. That's why you came to church today. 
Let's see how Jesus changed the meaning of Passover and unleavened bread when he met with his disciples in the upper room at what we call the Last Supper. Luke 22, uh, verse 1, sort of sets the context. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching, okay? Then we jump down to verse 14 to 20. When the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread, that would have been unleavened bread, and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. These words are familiar to us because we read them often when we celebrate communion together. But we have to think back. These words had to be shocking to Jesus' apostles. All their lives, for generations, for 1,500 years, the people followed what God commanded Moses to tell them, that the unleavened bread would represent the day they exited Egypt. Remember how God rescued them from Egypt. And now on the eve before he went to the cross, Jesus declared that unleavened bread would no longer remind them of the day God rescued them from Egypt. From now on, the blood, the bread would remind them and remind us of the day Jesus rescued you and I from sin and death. Only the Son of God had the authority to do that. When Jesus took the cup of wine and no longer represented the, rep- the, the redemption of Israel, from now on, the wine represented his blood that he shed for their redemption and for ours. Jesus gave us the ordinance of communion so that every day of our lives we would remember the day that he died to save our lives forever. That's why we celebrate communion, and I'm looking forward to celebrating communion with you at the end of the service. Let's finish the instructions for Passover, verses 5 to 8. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time when you, that you came out of Egypt. You shall cook and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you are to return to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. God commanded his people to come to the tabernacle. Later, God commanded his people to come to the temple. And then later, we'll see that God commanded his people to come to his church. God established the church. And church attendance is dwindling in our country. I guess because people sometimes ask, why why go to church? What's the point? Why go to church? The wonderful theologian Steve Martin said, uh, I, I, I believe in going to church unless there is a game on. I think that's the attitude of a lot of people. I'll go to church if nothing else is happening. So why, why do we come to church? God wants us to gather in church. God wants us to gather in our community groups and in our prayer meetings and all the gatherings that we have so that we can have an opportunity to come together as his family, his people, as one to worship him. Hebrews 10 
verses 24 to 25 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God, God doesn't want us living in isolation. God wants us to gather together because when we get together, we encourage each other to grow in our faith and in our relationship with Christ. Yeah, sometimes church can be frustrating because you know what? It's full of people. It's full of, full of broken, damaged people just like you, just like me. And you know what the power of God does in a church full of broken people? God uses those broken people to encourage each other and to teach each other how to follow the Lord more closely. It's a miracle. And I have to thank you. I cannot... I tried to write it down, and I stopped because I couldn't write down how much you've encouraged me in my faith, how much you've caused me to grow in my relationship with Christ. You're just the best family I can imagine. I'm so glad we no longer have to make animal sacrifices when we come to church. But did you know that we are still commanded to bring a sacrifice? That sacrifice we bring is ourselves. Not to die on an altar, but to live for Christ. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God blesses us when we come together. And God blesses us when we worship him. And true worship only happens when you and I come and give God our whole selves, our body, our spirit, and our mind. Okay, let's move on to the second feast. It's called the Feast of Weeks, but you and I probably know it better by the Greek name Pentecost. We'll read about that in chapter 16, verses 9 to 12. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite who is in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst. In other words, everybody come. I added that. That's not in the scripture, but that's what he's saying. Everybody come. Come to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and, that you, sh and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. This one-day festival took place 50 days after a barley offering was made during Passover. In the Greek, the word Pentecost means 50. Okay, so you might be wondering, how do we get 50 when it's seven weeks? That's not 50. Well, Leviticus 23 says the people were to count seven weeks and then on the next day have this feast. So that's 49 plus 1 equals 50. And I want you to know I did that math all by myself. 
This feast was a time of joy, a time of thanksgiving for completing their harvest. And God wanted the people to remember, though, as they brought in this bountiful harvest, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. You once had nothing. But God rescued them. And not only did he rescue them, he brought them in the promise to the promised land, not only to live in the promised land, but to thrive. God told the people to bring a free will offering. Just bring whatever they have based on how God had blessed their harvest. And to joyfully realize when they do that, that they are dependent on the Lord for absolutely everything they have. This hasn't changed. This is still the purpose for, our, for us bringing offerings today. You heard Mia talk about giving, whether we do it online or whether we put it in the box in the back. Our, the reason for bringing an offering to the Lord is the same thing. First, we realize we too used to be slaves. We weren't slaves in Egypt, but we were slaves to our sin. We were slaves to death. Jesus Christ sent us free. We have been redeemed. We have been rescued. Our gifts that we give to the Lord are out of the gratitude in our heart. Jesus, you saved us. What can I give you? What can I give you in return? And on top of that, our offerings remind us, I hope they remind us, every time we put money in the bank or in the, in the bag or in the back, wherever we give money to the Lord, we do so because we're recognizing everything we have. Even our next breath is because of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9-7 makes sense. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, well, what do you and I have to be cheerful about? Oh, not much. Just in Christ, you, you and I have been rescued from sin. You and I have been rescued from death. We have been given eternal life. Oh, and by the way, the God we rely on for everything is loving, uh, faithful, and all-powerful. That's it. If that doesn't cheer you up, check your pulse. The Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is typological because it pointed to a future wonderful day when God would pour out His Spirit to establish His new gathering place called the church. We, this happened about 1,500 years after Moses. Let's read about it. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. To these, meaning His disciples, Jesus also presented Himself alive after His suffering. This means Jesus appeared after his death and resurrection, by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me, that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. After Jesus spoke these words, you know what he did? He ascended into heaven. He rose and he was received into a cloud. And the disciples did something really good. They obeyed the Lord and they waited in Jerusalem. But they didn't have to wait very long. Just 10 days later came the day of Pentecost. And on that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out on a gathering of about 120 believers, 120 followers of Christ. And that was the church's birthday. Let's read about that. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Wouldn't you love to have been there for that? Oh my goodness, wouldn't that be great to see that? In the first century, in the first century, God established his church to be the place where followers of his son would gather. It's now the 21st century, and here we are. I think that's awesome. All right, let's read about the third feast. It's called the Feast of Booths, uh, verses 13 to 15. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you have gathered in from your threshing floor and your wine vat. And you shall rejoice in your feast, and you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan, the widow who's in your towns. Again, God welcomes people from all walks of life. It's wonderful. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Love the picture of that. The Feast of Booths, the word booths or tabernacles, we get from the Hebrew word sukkot, which means to make a makeshift shade or a makeshift hut. When the people of Israel left Egypt, they traveled and set up makeshift homes made out of whatever they could plants and brush they could find. This feast was commanded, though, by God for them to, re- to remember how they came out of Egypt and also a joyful celebration to remember that God provided for them not only for the 40 years they walked in the wilderness, but now and forever he will provide for them in the promised land. Something really cool happened on this day. On the final day of this festival, the high priest conducted a water ceremony for the people to remind them that they were dependent on the rain that God provided for their crops, okay? Do you want to see something amazing Jesus did on this day at this festival? This is fantastic. Again, goosebumps, wow. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. So picture you're at the water ceremony, okay? The high priest is doing the water ceremony. Now, on the last day, the day of the great feast, that's the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood. He stood up in this, and he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. On the final day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus stood and declared in loud and clear that he and he alone is the source of everlasting life, everlasting blessing from God. All right, let's look at verses 16 to 17. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, and at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. At these three feasts, all men over the age of 20 were commanded to come before the Lord, and if possible bring their families, and as we read, bring their whole community with them. God's house is open to everyone. And God commanded the people not to come empty-handed because God doesn't want us to hoard the blessings he gives us. I know that's hard for us. Some of us are better at giving than others, but it's hard. Ooh, we got something. Don't want to let go of it. But the Lord blesses us not for us to hoard it, but for us to share it with others. Let's close with some final instructions that God gave to the, for leadership. 
verses 18 to 20. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in your towns, in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. And you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. God calls his leaders to lead only one way. Only one way. And that is in humble obedience to him. God's leaders must be impartial. God's leaders must be unwilling to take a bribe of any kind. Leaders must not be persuaded by financial gain. Leaders must not be persuaded by popular opinion or peer pressure or wanting to be popular or being afraid of criticism. Leaders are to lead only one way, by following Christ. So that's our message. These are the words that God has spoken to you and me this morning. I hope we listen. Hope we took them into our heart. Bill, if you want to bring your worship team up. We're going to respond to the Lord by celebrating communion together. The elements are in the front, and then there's a table in the back if that's more convenient where you are. I'm going to pray in a moment, and after, after I pray, go ahead, and, when you're ready, come up and take the elements back to your seat and take communion at your seat, and then we'll close with a final song. When you take the bread today, take an extra moment to think about what that bread represents. Jesus, on his body, took the full brunt of God's wrath, the wrath we deserve. God, Jesus took that on himself. And just before you juice, take the juice, take an extra moment to look at that juice and just think Jesus shed his blood. Jesus gave his blood to wash you and me clean of our sins, not just now, but forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your words today. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for telling us the truth. I pray we heard you. I pray we took your words into our hearts and our minds. Now, Lord, as we prepare to take communion, we know, we know we are broken and sinful people. We deserve your wrath for our sins. But Jesus, you died to pay for our sins. On the cross, you took the full wrath of God on yourself, the wrath we deserve. Then you rose from the grave to assure us of eternal life. Wow, Jesus, you are our Lord and our Savior. We thank you. We love you. We need you. We are lost without you. And it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.